Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Michael O. Johnston, and I am a host on the channel. Today, I have Dr. Michelle Waken on the show. Dr. Waken is Professor of Sociology and Faculty Director of the Center for Urban Poverty at Bridgewater State University. Today, Dr. Waken and I will be talking about her book, Hobo Jungle, A Homeless Community in Paradise, published by Lynn Reiner. Yes, Dr. Waken, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Could you tell me a little bit about how you uh, came to write Hobo Jungle, A Homeless Community in Paradise? Sure. Um, well, I am from Connecticut, and that's kind of important in the context of doing research in Southern California. Um, but I think what interested me initially, originally in homelessness itself, was that I grew up in the 1980s, going in and out of Manhattan, seeing a lot of Times Square. And all of a sudden, we began to see people on the street women and children, um, homelessness in those days, this was completely new to see that many people, that diversity of people, um, you know, on our rides in and out of the city, I would imagine as a child, you know, where, where would I hide if I was homeless? Um, it was on the news. It was everywhere. It was very palpable in those days. And I think, I think that image really stuck with me. And then it became part of my intellectual trajectory when I was getting a master's degree at Boston University, and I worked in a shelter called St. Francis House. Um, I was researching bilingual education, and I was really interested in how um, people who were not native speakers navigated both homelessness and a second language. Um, and then when I moved out to California, I moved to UC Santa Barbara. It's about um, an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. And there I got really serious about ethnographic fieldwork, qualitative methodology. And again, the visible image of poor people in paradise this time, you know, instead of Times Square was something that really, really struck me. Um, So when I moved in, I began volunteering at local shelters and I heard stories about a place called the jungle. And it was really the first thing that drew me to study homelessness in California. Um, People described it as a mysterious group of shacks that were protected and allowed to flourish. And they were on the property of a wealthy widow. So I was immediately interested in examining its history um, to understand how it developed in the city um, along the waterfront. Um, So these things were very fascinating. And so I I was initially drawn to the study of the jungle and, you know, how people survive unsheltered in, in that community. And you write about how how complex homelessness is. Homelessness uh, isn't just one thing, and and some of these homeless people are referred to as hobos. Others call them transients. But it's a it's a complex issue. You write um, about the role that drug and alcohol addiction plays, mental illness, abuse, criminal behavior, and the lack of education that serves a role in homelessness. Could you talk a little bit more about that, please? Sure. Yeah. These are. These are difficult issues to address. Uh, I think there's often the fear of saying that these things exist and taking kind of a wide-eyed look at them for fear of confirming the stereotypes. 
but as a sociologist, I want to examine these things in context and view them as both causes of causes and effects of poverty, particularly unsheltered chronic homelessness. So it's important to examine how, if these are seen as underlying causes, how are they being addressed through policy? So, you know, research shows us that people experiencing homelessness and mental illness are more likely to end up in prison than they are in community care facilities. And this, as we all know, is not treatment. It exacerbates the problem. So when I'm looking at these issues, I'm always, you know, thinking, are we are we addressing the underlying causes of homelessness or are we simply punishing its effects? So you asked a bit about um, addiction and alcoholism, and those are really really huge issues, but not only among poor and homeless communities. These are simply the people who are policed more heavily. Um, but you know, when you when you get into the nitty gritty of face-to-face homeless services, you realize that many communities lack comprehensive, you know, treatment, medical and social detox. Very few have things like training and education for adults um, who are ready to re-enter the job market. But on the other hand, sobriety and job readiness are prerequisites for housing, shelter, and welfare. So are we really preparing people and offering the skills that they need to get back on their feet, or are we simply punishing them for not being there already? So those are kinds of those are some of the questions that I want to ask when I'm looking at things like mental illness, things like addiction, the violence and trauma that happens in the homeless community is where is it coming from and what can actually be done about that? Yes, and I really like uh, your approach that C. Wright Mills would uh, would would call looking at both the history and the biography uh, of the issue. So understanding its structural and individual implications uh, when when studying homelessness. Yes, a classic part of the sociological imagination. But yes. these are things that I think you know people automatic. I think that these are things that are used to divide homeless people away from sort of us and, and, and even divide them, you know, categories of homeless people who are seen as either deserving of assistance or not. And so when we're thinking about solutions and addressing underlying causes, we also have to get away from the sort of good, bad binaries. You know, I mean, if we, as the Obama administration did develop a funding stream and a comprehensive approach for addressing veteran homelessness, we will make headway. The problem is, you know, it's like popping a water balloon with a million tiny pins and trying to stop the water from one place and another and another and another, you know, without dealing with, you know, underlying structural causes, we aren't going to solve the problem except in little pockets. And what I see oftentimes, and maybe you saw this with your ethnography as well, but uh, a pendulum that tends to swing back and forth from a punitive model to a medical model, which neither social structures tend to um, provide a solution to homelessness. Right. Um, Teresa Gowan has a great book called Hobos, Hustlers, and Backsliders on this exact topic and talks about the focus being on individual blame. So homeless people themselves as being, you know, seen as being sick or sinful or victims of the structure or the system. Um, But again, rather than harm reduction or trauma. So when we're setting homeless people up, you know, to try to offer positive solutions, a lot of times these end up being shotgun solutions that punish the effects of homelessness and poverty and end up creating structural barriers that deepen long-term cyclical poverty. I mean, there there are some positive approaches 
but they are usually like the housing first approach, um, like the vulnerability index, which is a tool to prioritize people for housing based on mortality risk if left on the street. And these really cut across the issues of good and bad, deserving, undeserving, people we like and people we don't, and focus on addressing those underlying causes. So deserving and undeserving, I think this might be a, a good platform to to look at when, when we look at the uh, person who is homeless. And again, it's quite complex, but uh, you make mention to women and, um, excuse me, racial diversity and um, men and women as homeless, deserving or undeserving. And, and I guess, how were women seen in the jungle or were there very uh, many women in the jungle? Um. There were very, very few women in the jungle, and it was usually um, temporary, or they were um, girlfriends um, or romantically involved with um, some of the men in the jungle. I mean, very, very few women were there, and simply because they would get hurt. And this is unequivocally the case. Any woman living in the jungle was usually the partner of one of the men who camped there regularly. They usually camped in groups. This was obviously not a guarantee of safety, but um, there were a few cases where men were rounded up and arrested, and if the one and where a woman would have been left by herself, apparently she didn't have an, a record or they weren't searching for her. Um, and in those cases, women would never stay in the jungle by themselves; they would absolutely leave. Um, the only cases that I've heard of women camping by themselves or in twos they were harassed um, pretty much unequivocally. And that's true for women living in their vehicles as well. But overall, women experiencing homelessness were much more likely to live in vehicles or shelters, um, to double up, or to trade favors, whether they're sexual, romantic, caretaking types of favors for semi-safe housing. And that was really, really common for women. And then, of course, sober women and women with children were more likely to be in one of the transitional programs uh, or family shelters that offered more of a continuum of care approach. Um, women who were who were seriously mentally ill or had addiction issues would not fit into those programs or not be able to stay there in the long term. But there there were a few more options for women. But you know, none of these is luxurious. All of these are because they would be physically at risk on the street. And was the jungle very racially diverse? Yeah, um, racially diverse, sure, but very separate. Um, the men's clusters or the camps that they lived in in the jungle were very race-based. I talk a bit in the book about the camp where Russ and his group live, and this is an all-white camp. Um, and they're a camp from where men from Central and South America live is a very separate camp. Some men camp in twos, but also, these also tend to be race-based. And I talk a bit about this in the book, but this kind of racial segregation, antagonism, it very much mirrors the structure and culture of prison. And many of the men learn to keep these divisions on the outside. And this is in part for their protection. Men will protect other men in their group. Um, and it's very race-based kind of warfare. But we, we see this happening when, in the book, I describe Russell attacking a man outside of the shelter. And this man camps with the group everyone refers to as the Paisas and or homeboys, a loose, loose translation. And when they hear about what Russell did to him, it's a matter of time before they get revenge. 
And so there is this sense of race-based kind of protection. But uh, absolutely, white supremacy and white separatism are a very vicious and scary part of life in the jungle. But, but I would emphasize, you know, as with things like mental illness and addiction, we have to keep thinking about which comes first, prison or racism, the jungle or prison. You know, all of these things are sort of entwined with one another. And I think, you know, given the frequent interactions with law enforcement, that really becomes, especially in the 2000s, a very integral feature of the experience of homelessness that really makes it a much more difficult, complex problem. And even those who are ready for escape realize if they have any time, you know, homeless, have criminal backgrounds, it's much, much more difficult. And it's cyclical. It's not mutually exclusive. It's not, it's not necessarily linear. Uh, as you just said, which comes first, prison or homelessness? Which comes first, racism or, uh, or prison? So uh, understanding it as a more of a structural cycle, I think, is valuable instead of just seeing um, these people as outside stigmatized people um, uh, who, who need not to be bothered with. Right. Right. I mean, you know, there is, I, Russ is one of the scariest people I describe in the book. Um, but what's interesting about it and, and certainly when I realized the degree of white separatism that they were all endorsing, it was frightening, you know, really a hit of sort of physical reaction even to it. But what I, didn't, what I didn't write about in the book, which is interesting, and it really makes you think about the question of which comes first, is that there were moments when Russ was alone, when he would talk about either individuals or words in Spanish, or foods he liked, or some appreciation of the people and culture that seemed genuine. And so you see people becoming something different, but they didn't do it because they're bad innately or, you know, just awful people. But this is coming from years and years of being in and out of the system being thought of as worthless, you know, having all of these structural barriers that you're facing. And it's, it's not a way of excusing it, but it does view it in context and looks really critically at, at where it's coming from because we don't want to keep perpetuating this. And as we see with the current pandemic, congregate living, street living is unsafe and unsanitary for everyone. And so the sooner we can think about broad-based societal solutions, we'll be much further along towards solving the problem. And that's the joys of ethnography, of being able to be out in the field and to be able to get the, uh, the depth of the stories that um, often is not provided through quantitative uh, means of data collecting. Definitely, definitely. So you mentioned this wealthy widow. Um, I believe her name is Lillian Childs. And, uh, and could you talk a little bit more about how she created what is known as uh, the jungle. Sure. Um, yeah, she was fascinating. So, you know, as my early ethnography was getting going, I really loved digging into the archives. So, you know, in the book, I talk about three basic time periods, the 1940s, 1950s, the 1980s, and then the 2000s. Um, and so Child was a wealthy widow, and she will sort of head up the first period, which is pre- um, is during the Great Depression, pre-1940s, 50s. 
But she was a wealthy widow who came to Santa Barbara much earlier in 1906. Um, she married a man named John Beale. They came and settled in, in Santa Barbara. Um, he died in 1914, and she remarried and became Lillian Child, as we know her, in 1921. So this was right in the Roaring Twenties. Um, she glamorized Santa Barbara society pages. She and her husband, they had very lavish, luxurious parties. The house that they owned was on a beautiful hill. It was the crown jewel of Santa Barbara's waterfront area, which is still really preserved and very pristine. So they were very well known, um, led to the sense of opulence that Santa Barbara was developing. And then she was widowed again in 1936. And this was during the Great Depression. And at that point, she assumed the role of proprietor of the, the mansion, which was called Vegamar, Star of the Sea, and then the estate itself, which was about 16 acres of land overall. And it still is prime waterfront property. Today, is, it, it is the city zoo. Um, and it still is as the bird refuge, the mountains, the ocean. All of these things are visible right from its pathways. But the story about Lillian Child and the jungle begins in the 1930s. And it, as they tell it, she was walking along her property one evening and saw the police telling some, in those days, they called them knights of the road, um, telling some knights of the road to move along. And she stopped the officers and said, this is my property. They're welcome to be here. And as long as they behave themselves and she set up rules for them, they could invite their friends. And so they built shacks and settled on the property. And at its height, there were 60 shacks in the jungle. And there, as you'll see, if you, you know, in the book, there are a lot of photographs of these. It was well-preserved. But the most important piece of her role in the jungle is that it was her land. It was private property. And the fact that she cared for and protected the men was very significant. Some people just tolerated them, but in, for others, they became a really beloved part of the community, sort of a symbol of freedom. You know, in those days, people seemed to appreciate the fact that the men wanted to provide for themselves. They didn't want to rely on anyone else. They wanted to be self-sufficient. And so there was some measure of kind of acceptance of that. But she died in 1951, and she ended up deeding the land to the city for a public park, eventually the city zoo. But she never provided financially. There was nothing explicit to provide for the men in her will. But still, because of her prominence, because of how well-known they were and, and you know, some people cared for them, the city did attempt to provide a recreation building for the men. They even moved cottages onto the land. Um, in the 1960s, there were only three people who remained, and they tried to do that. But I guess it was her death and also the changing economic climate that we see post-World War II and 40s and 50s, the embrace of domesticity. Um, so it was the changing economic climate also. You know, there was low-skilled labor was more available. The men in the 40s and 50s could access Social Security benefits. So all of these things helped the jungle to kind of fade out of existence. But that was her role. She was the protector. Um, what's interesting when we look at, you know, compare that with the later years of the jungle, in the 1980s, the jungle resurfaces. And it's not in the zoo property anymore, which by this point is developed. But it's still along the waterfront area, still in the same basic place. Um, and the 1980s is the one period the book looks at that was both a time of local controversy in Santa Barbara, and then also a time of natural, national, um, the homelessness became a national social problem. So this is kind of a good fit. And the 1980s were really the, one of the most exciting, interesting times. 
And the jungle is the subject of um, a lot of research, a lot of attention in the area. Um, Santa Barbara was home to a lot of advocates. Um, Mitch Snyder visited and protested in Santa Barbara. It was the subject of a doctoral dissertation, um, a book called Homeless in Paradise. It was part of the fight to reduce or to eliminate address requirements for homeless people so they could, they could get the right to vote. So Santa Barbara was very much right on track with the nation in trying to provide for homeless people, trying to stop criminalization, get them basic rights. So this was an interesting time, but the the jungle kind of migrated and, and was never on private property again after Lillian Child. Um, and then just to connect it to the 2000s, what was happening with homelessness in the 2000s is a harder to say in a lot of ways. Demographic estimates don't really take off until about 2005. And there isn't a national outcry at this time. But in Santa Barbara, the new millennium is a very important time because the city's first emergency shelter is being built. And you really don't have a critical mass, you know, a larger jungle area in the new millennium um, without it being swiftly crushed much more quickly than would happen in the 1980s. And this is also a feature of not being on private land. So in the 2000s, the city builds its first emergency shelter. And the folks doing that are um, develop a coalition, a nonprofit, and they purchase the building and they rehab the building. It's incredibly expensive. And a lot of the folks doing it are business owners on State Street, which is the city's main thoroughfare. And so one of the reasons that they do it is not only benevolence, they want to help and support, but they also want to protect their business. And so there's a lot of controversy um, in the 2000s about what's going to happen to people in the jungle. So they become a much smaller set of fragmented camps. Um, They do have this new shelter option, but there's a lot of tension around it because it's initially open for only three to four months a year during the coldest winter winter months, which is still not uncommon in warm weather areas. Um, So what this does, if it's only open a a little bit, (laughs) then it kind of forces people into a cycle of insecurity and instability. And so when we look at how that happens with shelter and welfare and housing, it's multiple risk factors that in the book, I kind of liken to a vortex, you know, a way of dragging people kind of down um, through creating structural barriers. So I think looking at the transition in the jungle over time from when it was a private piece of land, when child protected the men, they may have benefactors after that. They do definitely always have advocates working to, you know, fight criminalization, for example. Or as I describe in the book in the 2000s, we developed classes, we developed, you know, education, um, legal advocacy. So we did a lot of positives. And what's interesting is the only time that they had both advocates working for them and a private place to call their own was with Lillian Child. And so after that, that never really happens again, unless and until people are able to purchase vehicles to live in. But even then, they really don't endure the level of privacy, prominence, protection, all of the things that the early jungle residents kind of were able to enjoy. And you were talking about uh, some of the different uh, policies that were in place with the vehicles that they had and how they could not be 
parked on public streets uh, beyond a certain frame of of time as a way to uh, I don't know draw more more commercial activity to draw to draw I think because of it being more of a tourist community and who can be parked in these spaces and who cannot and sort of trying to um, uh, try try to hide the homelessness right. in Santa Barbara. Yeah, I mean, I think that's still very much a feature of how not only Santa Barbara, but, you know, a lot of communities approach homelessness is the service dynamic tends to be, you know, we will create this emergency shelter. But what that does is legislate where homeless people can and should be. And so what you often have have happen with something like a provision like the shelter is then there's a backlash. And so anyone else who doesn't use the one option the city endorses is out of luck. But what you'll see when you look at the shelter spaces available, you know, people either want to and can provide for themselves. You know, they want to sleep in, in couples, you know, which shelters often won't allow. They want to have pets. They want to have preferences. All the things that all of us consider instrumental to where we like to call home are still the things that homeless people want. And the only place that they're able to really do that, you know, there are places where they're able to, it's really few and far between. So the shelter isn't really doing it. Many people aren't fitting immediately into a long-term program. And so if stuck on the street, you know, at least a vehicle provides a safer option, a locked door, but they still face a lot of persecution. I mean, if you have a vehicle, you're able to move constantly, you know, you're, you're in a little better shape, but there really isn't much of a legal a legal place or a provision or anywhere that they can go that will serve the majority of the population. So again, you have this sort of split between good ones and bad ones. And, you know, it's it's almost like suggesting you have to have the full purchase price for a house before you even think about it. I mean, it's sort of the same thing. You have to have achieved sobriety and almost be ready to be employed in order to get help. And that makes it really difficult. Which then leads, I think, oftentimes to the uh, to the homeless population, the camps, turning inward as a solution to some of the problems that they have, creating a bureaucracy, a hierarchy within the homeless population. Uh, could you um, talk a little bit uh, about what you found with this bureaucracy within the camps? Sure. I mean, and it does it does change over times and but there there always is a hierarchy um in the old days so the 40s and 50s i talk about edward anderson who was the mayor of the jungle and he was elected um he held this role among among others he was one of several mayors over time um and he was mayor in 1951 but in those days the role was really designed to be an ambassador to the rest of the city and with lillian child um, it was clear that she was not afraid to speak for herself and that she was the ultimate authority of the jungle. But it seemed as if, you know, they were she didn't want to become involved in the day to day. It didn't need to be an everyday thing. If there was a problem, if the police needed to be called, if there was a fire, then the mayor in those days as an elected official would be the one to handle it. In the 1980s, there was grassroots activism um, and the leaders of that were from the jungle. They were younger than Anderson. They were more prone to action, both in terms of physical violence and protest. Um, and they were not really ambassadors. Um, you know, some when I talk about the jungle leaders in the 1980s, 
this is really where I start to examine in more detail the distinction between good ones and bad ones. Um, because you have a definite split that begins in the 1980s and deepens to the present of people who become, who are the longer term, what we think of as chronic homeless people, um, enduring this you know, for years and years at a time. And some of them were there when I did my research in the 2000s. So this is quite a span. Um, but what you have then among jungle leaders is this sort of separation. So the ones who ruled the jungle and didn't leave it very much, um, ruled by physical prowess, as they do in the 2000s. But there was a smaller faction in the 80s of people who were really fighting for increased rights and were part of the social protest movement. Um, some of whom I'm still in touch with to this day, um, but they were really the ones that were seen as more acceptable spokespeople for homelessness. During the millennium, uh, I was part of the coalition board, the, the group of people that built the shelter. And there was one person experiencing homelessness on that board, only one. And there only ever would be, you know, this kind of token representation so what I see over time is, you know, yes, there's bureaucracy, physical prowess reigns supreme, certainly in the jungle, um, the jungle of today, but people do become much more separated from the mainstream. And this is really problematic, um, you know, as I talk about in a, in a few different examples of people who in the housed community or on coalition boards really wanting to hear homeless voices, but if they're directly from the jungle, they are so not used to being in these settings, to turn-taking, to the way that conversation happens, the way that meetings are run, the way that you contribute, that they often end up both embarrassing themselves and confirming the stereotypes. And so this was one thing that over time I found, that people really become sort of dangerously removed from the mainstream. And I think that's uh, maybe where you talk about Prez, Ed, and, and Ricky being quite different than the book man and Anderson in the way in which they um, ruled the jungle or um, served as, as advocates for the, the jungle. Yeah. I mean, by the time I get to Ricky and Edwin, you know, they really, they serve in some ways and this is both their personalities, but it's the location of their camp is that they see everything. Um, and they have to be very careful about what they share. So um, I suppose it is still true that they are able to be watchdogs in a sense. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's an ambassador role because I don't think anyone in the city would listen to them. <laughs> However, if there's ever danger in the jungle, it still is the case that the older, which is this is true for Ricky and Edwin, the older men, the ones at the top of the camp, the ones who've been there in the long term, the ones who are well-located um, you know, physically in the jungle are often the ones to, you know, if it needs to happen, to call the police, to call an ambulance. So there is still sort of a watchdog kind of role, but it's much more internal. So what's happening to uh, the jungle uh, today? And is it starting to lose its uh, presence in Santa Barbara? Is it uh, further deteriorating? Um, as it existed from what it existed in the 1940s, 50s, and in the 1980s. Uh, what, what did you notice as you, as you were coming to uh, a close with your, with your research? Sure. Um, well, within Santa Barbara, 
after the 80s, you know, the jungle does become a lot more fragmented. So in the 2000s, we see these pocket jungles developing in and around the industrial area, really very similar areas that they've always been, but no critical mass, no big community ever develops again, not to the same level of prominence. I, in the book, I describe a smaller jungle area where a man called, everyone calls Crazy Ed, um, lives in his milk truck. And so this is just an example of how anytime there's critical mass in the new millennium, it gets crushed very swiftly. So Ed lived in this milk truck in an area along a freeway on-ramp for years. Um, once the shelter was located in the industrial area, Ed's jungle got a lot more attention. And that became, you know, the magnet theory that says that people are flocking from, you know, to California, from New York, because the services are great. That is a myth. But what it did was pull people from one side of town to the other. And so what you have in the 2000s is lots more traffic in the industrial area, lots more traffic and overlapping vehicle, street, shelter communities in this one area. And they're easy to find inside repeatedly. But once there's a lot more traffic, Ed's Little Jungle got a lot more attention. And it was bulldozed completely, almost in the same way that the 1980s jungle was. And so this is kind of the you know, difference between permanence and protection you know, that the vehicle or private land will offer versus street living. And this is one of, the, one of the points to underscore is that any stability that you develop, if you're living in a place as precarious as the jungle, even in terms of relationships and, and social ties, can be taken away at any time and everything that goes with it. And this is as traumatic for someone living in the jungle as it would be for any one of us. Um, so Santa Barbara, you know, definitely still has a large unsheltered population, but, you know, with increased provisions, punishment is ever stronger. And the last time I was there, you know, the vehicle program that I developed, the safe parking program for people living in their vehicles is still going strong, but there really isn't much more. And again, you know, because these safe parking lots are there, everybody else who's left on the street is policed a bit more heavily. So, you know, that was something that I noticed. It, it's a little different depending on where you go. So, you know, you asked a little bit about how the community, is it dispersed from Santa Barbara? Santa Barbara being one of the most opulent communities. And that's definitely true. Um, people who I knew in the 2000s have now retired to or left the area for cheaper housing. Um, but again, Santa Barbara is different than other areas. So I did some comparative research in Santa Cruz and Sonoma counties. And, you know, with regard to permissiveness, I think it's safe to say that allowing people to live outdoors, whether it's a large or small community, whether it's seen as a hippie community or a luxurious one, that's just dangerous for everyone. Um, but again, the reason that it's happening is through inadequate, unaffordable housing markets, unstable seasonal shelters, and a lot of criminalization. And where we see this right now, the epicenter of this is clearly Los Angeles, um, where we have a huge skid row population still. And, you know, a large percentage of people are still living unsheltered. So, I mean, you know, I think the housing market much more, the housing market combined with aggressive criminalization does a lot to keep this population, you know, on the edge of stability. Um, in Santa Cruz, there's a, it's a little bit unique because Santa Cruz has a thousand acre greenbelt overlay area that kind of surrounds the city. And, 
you know, I did, I did research on the fringes of a jungle camp beside the railroad tracks. And so in Santa Cruz, because of the lots of green space, these areas can be really remote um, and very, very dangerous. And they can become part of the drug trade. Um, so this is really becoming something that where people are far, far removed from services um, and employing corrections officers, increasing punishment doesn't reduce the street population. It just keeps them unstable. But but quickly, because I don't want to be all negative, um, one of the things that that they did in San, in Sonoma County, in Santa Rosa, that was really innovative regarding unsheltered homeless people was that they coordinated the annual point in time count. And instead of trying to find people where they hide, which is really, really difficult to do, they invited people to come out and receive services and be counted. And that was really, really innovative. They got better information and a much more accurate sense of how many people were out there. You know, in California today, as of 2019, 72% of the state's homeless population is unsheltered. That is a staggering, staggering, staggering number. And that's only the point in time count, you know, which really is only a snapshot count once a year. If we look at, you know, we know that people drift in and out of homelessness over the course of a year, for example. So, you know, I think the numbers are even larger than what we have in the point in time count, but I absolutely think it's, it's unfortunately continuing to be an ongoing problem. Um, Santa Barbara has had some success with innovative programs to serve special populations. So for people who are severely mentally ill, there are programs for veterans that are really successful. Um, but again, they are for special populations. But when you look at the overall numbers, I think Santa Barbara, you know, has become a, a much less, a much more, I should say, punitive place. And so there are still people there, but unless they're in one of the designated locations, it's very, very dangerous for those who are left out on the street. And I think uh, something that's important to recognize here is the need for uh, multiple approaches to be taken, but seeing the whole person first and foremost, one of the things that you uh, make note of in, in your writing is that uh, it's quite difficult to create a re- uh, to first create a relationship so that you can be trusted by the people who are living in the jungle and and to get information from them. Right. I mean that that is one of the things that I have to say was the most striking is the radical separation between us and them that happens even among advocates, you know, who are really just usually devoting their time unpaid to try to find something to do to assist people. Um, But a lot of times it ends up being really artificial. So there are great intentions, but you often have housed people trying to impose their version of what they think those people might need. And that never works. It would be as if it would be like saying, you know, between you and I, I'm going to provide your meals but I'm going to provide you with what I think you should eat. Um, nobody would be happy with that. <laughs> the, the old adage that beggars can't be choosers, that's not human beings. You know, um, everyone still wants their choice. I mean, look at, look at the situation that we're in when we can't all go to the market or go to stores and get what we want. And we are experiencing on a much smaller scale, surprisingly, you know, what homeless people experience when they're removed from things all of us find comforting. So one of the more esoteric points that I bring up in the beginning of the book is these, I, this idea of a common experience. 
you know, and that this is the way that we sort of understand homelessness. We look at how their use of space becomes more constrained over time. You look at, you know, what it's like to submit to the routines of shelter, to have to submit to bus schedules, public transportation, you know, all of those things that make mobility a cycle and not really going anywhere. You're just trying to get from place to place to place. And I think on a, again, on a, a for maybe a, just a temporary scale, I think we're all experiencing that now and realizing, and this is for people who have homes and credit cards, that it is traumatic. And it's certainly much more traumatic when, as homeless people often do, they're very stigmatized. You know, they're questioning their own self-worth because they're very well aware of how other people, you know, view them and treat them. And and many people end up just surviving. But in some really exciting, you know, places, times, there is also resistance to the idea that this is it, that this is all we can do for people or that's all that they are or that's all that they should have access to. So I think the experience of it, and that's one of the reasons that I really try to highlight that, it isn't as when we imagine homelessness, imagine it's us, not them. <laughs> because I think in that case, we would develop very, very di- different solutions. And, you know, the, the Housing First movement really deserves special mention because it had the unique insight of asking people who were experiencing severe mental illness on the street what they want. And it was shocking to everyone that they know exactly what they want. And it's not case management. It's safety. And that's all anyone wants. Once we are able to establish that for the majority of the population, we can work on other things. But until that point, we are going to be like hamsters in a wheel. And I, I, in some ways, appreciate um, the experiences that I have today and, and the opportunity uh, to come this summer and even in the fall to be able to talk about the privilege that sort of sticks out as a sore thumb for uh, for us today as we are able to sit here behind a, a microphone talking to each other uh, about homelessness and uh, it really put it really puts a magnifying glass under this uh, false belief that the reason that we are as privileged as we are is because of our own doings. Yes. And it's very easy to turn a blind eye to kind of the horrors that are happening out there, as long as it's not us. And I think that's one of the things that people do. I mean, no one wants to say, yes, I discriminate against other people because I think I'm better. Nobody says that, but it's, it's an implicit part of policies that say it's okay for adults to sleep in rooms of 150 other adults because that's the only thing available. And if they don't take that and they're still on the street, we're going to arrest them. You know, looking at it that way, you know, um, and imagining that it could be us, it could be our mothers, it could be our children, you know, is a way of humanizing it and a way of making it a bit more real for everyone. You know, I have right now I run a program for students experiencing homelessness who've succeeded academically and, you know, watching the trauma that they go through. You know, I think what we have to understand is anytime there's any kind of upheaval in society, it hits the most vulnerable the hardest because they're the closest to the edge. And so it is a very scary. We're in a very privileged position. But I think. Um, as a nation, hopefully one of the good outcomes of this is that we'll really think seriously about our ability and desire 
to provide for everyone, at least a basic standard of living, even if that means, you know, the rest of us have to tighten our belts. And that's what I enjoy most about sociology is to be able to uncover and unravel the subtleties that uh, often exist around us, but is it goes unrecognized by the common eye. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very easy. Uh, it's to imagine what life is like for someone else. But until you're experiencing it yourself, I'll give you just a quick example. We had um we did some um a few surveys. So, hunger and homelessness among college students is also, you know, a really big thing, and in addition to the book, I've done a lot of work on our own campus. And so we've done surveys, we are presenting this and you know, someone suggested in the audience that maybe a way to address hunger is by, you know, we have lots of events on campus and there's all kinds of fancy catering and then the food sits there. And so someone suggested that maybe what we should do is have an app so that students would know when leftovers were there. And it sounds like a nice idea, but then I asked the question, can you imagine sending your own child to college and saying, you know, I can support you, but I don't have money for you to eat, but there's an app so you can get leftovers. You know, and when you say it like that, it's like, oh my gosh, no, no one would ever tell their child that that's horrible, but it's horrible for any child, not just yours or mine or the good ones. Um, I really try to emphasize that in the book. You know, there's a, a line that my publisher <laughs> found controversial in the acknowledgement section, and it's the idea of working to assist people in poverty, people who are struggling, whether you like them or not. And so I feel like as a society, what we keep waiting for them to do is being part of, is be part of a sympathetic population. You know, veterans, children, um, the blind, the aged, these are all groups that we provide for as a society in much deeper ways, but not everyone. And I think we have to rid ourselves of that mentality if we're ever going to make a longstanding, serious dent in the problem. I mean, that, again, is one of the things in the 1980s that was sort of this natural convergence. It was an issue in Santa Barbara. It was an issue for the nation. But in the millennium, you know, you feel sort of compassion fatigue and it's it's just there how can we make it go away and get back to business? But it isn't going away. And in places like California, the unsheltered population is really becoming out of control. I, I shouldn't say it's only in California. It really is nationwide. Um, there's a recent report by the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty that discusses how pervasive encampments have become because people are turning to this as a way when there's inadequate housing, they can't afford it. Um, or they have issues that would prevent them from getting housing and simply want more control over their living environment. So it really is something that I, I think will continue to mushroom unless we make a concerted effort to address a concerted effort to address root causes and not just punish people. And not just to wait for somebody to become part of a, a social group that pulls uh, pulls upon the uh, heartstrings of the general population. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we've come to a close. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but we have enough time for one final question. What are you working on now? 
Um, sure. Right now I'm working on uh, a new book for ABC Clio. It's part of their Contemporary World Issues series, and it is a reference handbook on American homelessness. So I'm really excited about it. It's similar in some ways to Hobo Jungle in that I'm able to go into a lot more of the history. So in this book, I choose three crisis points. I choose the Great Depression. I choose the 1980s and the Great Recession from about 07 to 09 as times when the nation is really kind of rocked to its core by, by homelessness. On a, and in different time periods, obviously it's different for different time periods, but I really, I love being able to get into the history a bit more. The audience for this will be high school seniors, possibly AP honor seniors or early college. So I'm, I'm, it's a new direction for me. I'm very excited about it. I'm excited. Also, please, uh, please do let me know uh, once it's published so that I can uh, further promote it using new books and sociology, but then also sharing it with my community here in Iowa. Wonderful. I'd love to. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for your time today, uh, Dr. Waken. And again, this is New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much.